0: Before we get started, an idea I want to plant in your, your head for today just to hold on to for now. We'll get there, but I want it to, to float around, to percolate, to ruminate before we hit the scripture. So with the Olympics going, uh, you might have heard this phrase, but it comes up uh, a lot of, from a lot of athletes when they're interviewed or they're reflecting on a really stellar performance. They say something like, the game slowed down. Have you ever heard that from someone who's really, really good at what they do? An athlete or an artist or, or someone who's just really zoned into their craft. The game can slow down for them. And, and it's not an uncommon phenomenon. Uh, over the past few years, we've actually started studying it. Uh, neuroscientists and psychologists have taken to referring to this experience as entering a flow state. I like that word. It makes me feel like doing something weird. Uh, One of the clearest definitions that I have found comes from the University of Miami's sports psychology department. They define flow as an optimal psychological state that typically occurs when there is a balance between perceived challenges and a person's skills or capabilities for action. Flow experiences are accompanied by an order in consciousness. That's The game slowed down, whereby the person has clear goals, concentrates on the task, receives unambiguous feedback, and feels in control of their performance. So take that, stick it in the back of your head. We're going to come back to it, but I wanted to put it out in front. So let's go ahead and we'll throw it up on the screen and jump to today's scripture. Uh, You'll recognize this one. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, always quick to speak up, sometimes better, sometimes for worse, Butson, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This story is weird, but its weirdness is obscured by time and language and culture. When we read the name Caesarea Philippi, it doesn't really mean anything to us. It's it's a nice Bible place. You've Heard this passage? Who do you say I am? You are the Son of God. You've heard this passage a lot. Caesarea Philippi is the place where that happened. Um, And that's kind of all we have for things like that. But the, the location of this story is critical to understanding what all is going on here. Caesarea Philippi is not just another place on the map, it's about 26 miles north from where the last part of this narrative took place for reference that is coincidentally almost the exact distance between this building and the Georgia State Capitol in Atlanta. Google Maps says that's about a nine-hour walk. So in this chapter, Jesus has a fairly typical run-in with the Pharisees. They want him to offer a sign, prove who he is, to which Jesus basically responds, you've gotten what you're going to get and that's really all you need, so whatever. and then he gets his friends together. They get in a boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee. Since we're comparing things to Georgia, the Sea of Galilee is about six square miles bigger than Lake Lanier. We, we say sea, so we think it's this huge thing. It's really a large lake. But he, uh, he gets his friends. They get in a boat. They sail across uh, Lake Lanier. And it's so spontaneous of a sailing venture that his friends forget to bring food, and they think Jesus is mad at them for this. And they arrive on the other side, and and without giving us any explanation of where or why they're going, Jesus starts to head north, and he walks north for nine hours towards a place that they should never go. Okay, see, now you're intrigued a little bit. Caesarea Philippi, the place you should never go. So what's the deal with Caesarea Philippi? First off, you might notice that the name does not sound very Hebrew, and you would be right, because this was not a Judean town. Originally settled by Alexander the Great as Panaeus, now with Judea and the surrounding regions under the control of the Roman Empire, the city is na- renamed Caesarea, which means something like Caesar's City or Caesar Town, And later, It gets tacked on Caesarea Philippi under the uh, vassal rulership of the Judean kings under the Herod family line. So here in the promised land is a little town named for a foreign emperor, self-proclaimed prince of peace, savior of the world, God-king. You can see why this might be a little off-putting to the local population. And by the time of Jesus, it has grown into really a proper Roman city. Uh, let's, I've got a slide for you. Here's an artist rendering representation of what they think the city might have looked like based upon uh, accounts and ruins. You can go visit this place and see some of those ruins. It's a proper Roman city, drawing all the region's resources to itself, exerting imperial power on everyone around it, It's got all the stuff you'd expect in a good Roman city. Shops, baths, entertainment, theaters, government buildings, and temples. Two of which are particularly interesting for this story. The first of the two temples I want to point out is the temple to Caesar Augustus. Massive, whitewashed temple constructed by Philip, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great remodels the temple in Jerusalem. His son Philip builds a temple to the god in Rome, Emperor Augustus, and it's this incredible, beautiful place where people go to worship the emperor. It's one of three such temples that the Jewish king would build for Augustus. This is a nexus of politics and religion, a place where the two are one in the same. The second temple, of particular note, was first built on the site by those Greeks when it was conquered by Alexander. This was the temple to the goat god Pan. This is the central location in this part of the world for the worship of this Pan god. People would travel from all over the world to come to these festivals in Caesarea Philippi to worship Pan, which you would do by engaging in sexual acts with goats. Wild, right? I see some grotesque looks out there that means you're responding correctly this temple was built at the base of a cliff so there's this massive cliff wall you can see it um, in that picture there and in on this uh this cliff face there's a massive gaping cave big hole in the wall and it descends steeply into the earth the worshipers of pan believed that this was an opening to the underworld and a place where the spirits could freely come and go. They called it the gates of hell. Now, if you want to go there today, which you can, it's a tourist attraction in the Golan Heights. It, uh, it looks something like this. This is what you would walk up to. These are the gates of hell, this massive hole in the side of the cliff that drops. Uh, today, it's actually been flooded. It's full of water, so it's kind of a nice, lovely pool. But by all accounts, it was a gaping hole that they thought they couldn't measure. They thought it went all the way to the underworld. It's kind of impressive, right? Uh, Give me the next slide. One more thing I want to show you that I think is really important. You can see on the left of this image is a piece of that hole. But the cliff face itself is rocky. It has these outcroppings, natural shelves. But also, there's some little grottos that have been carved into the wall. In this jagged cliff face, there's all these natural shelves and these extra things that people have dug in. And in the first century, when Jesus stood here with his disciples, it was probably covered with idols, acts of worship, uh, little statues, trinkets, offerings to spirits would be placed in each of these openings and on the natural shelves, displays of worship displays to the emperor, petitions to the forces of nature, altars to various ancients, ancient gods, religious superstition and idolatry at its finest. So you can imagine what it might have been like to be one of the disciples. These young men, some of them even teenagers, following their rabbi north on the road that they're pretty sure leads there. There. One author I was reading this week jokes about the brothers James and John, the sons of Zebedee, worrying about what might happen to them if their father finds out where they're going. He writes, we are so busted. So they arrive, a dissident rabbi and his band of misfit Jewish boys in a city full of Roman occupiers. And it makes sense to me, in my mind, that the scene that we read takes place in front of those cliffs on the massive courtyard in front of the gates of hell, that Jesus begins to ask them, who do do people say I am? What are people saying about me? Can you feel it? The the chaos, the noise, the static in the air in this place. Crowds, language, entertainment, corrupt political power, and, and the empire demanding attention on the level of worship. The cultural expectations of the disciples, these young men, of their upbringing and the cultural expectations of Rome competing for space in their consciousness. Consumerism, twisted sexuality, depravity proudly on display, and religion and idolatry everywhere. Can you feel it in the story? There's tension, there's suspense here. All of these different worldviews, opinions, options Imperatives, expectations, preferences, so many voices all speaking at once in Caesarea Philippi. Am, am I talking about Caesarea Philippi in the first century or the United States in the 21st century? Our lives are filled to and beyond capacity with voices clamoring for our attention, loyalty, and worship. Some of this is our fault, but some of this is just the water that we swim in. This is just where we are. How are you or how, how is anyone supposed to know who and what to listen to? How are you supposed to know which voices to trust? And how are you supposed to find them? Not to mention hear them over all of the noise. Is there a way for us to slow the game down? Is there a way to get into that sort of flow state? Here's from that definition again. How are we gonna get to a place where we can accurately perceive challenges, maximize capacities, establish clear goals, and concentrate on what's important? How do you slow the game down enough to know what matters and how to live in response? To look for an answer we go back to Caesarea Philippi. In the noise of the city, in front of the massive walls of, wall of idols demanding attention, the emperor demanding loyalty, the expectations of the marketplace, the superstitions of the gates of hell, the decadence of religion and the depravity of the goat people, a young man faces Jesus and a question, Who do you say I am? Verse 16, let's jump back into it. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Peter's clarity and confession has done three things things, major things, cosmic things, game-changing things. First, it has given Peter an identity and a calling. Second, it has centered Jesus and the gospel in Peter's life. And third, and don't miss this because it's really cool, it has put hell on defense. Jesus says the gates of hell will not overcome you. Gates are something you build to protect your city. Gates keep things out. Jesus says they're going to try to lock those gates tight and shut, but it's not going to work. For Peter, the game has slowed down, even if just for a moment. Clarity, identity, and purpose. If we are going to find these things in the madness, the chaos, the cacophony of voices that demand our attention today, we are going to need to follow Peter's lead. When we set our focus on jesus the reality of who he is and what that means for us and our world the game can slow down okay preacher i hear you focus on jesus blah 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 i've done that i'm a christian i'm still pretty confused what was that that john read earlier like an infant on the beach tossed back and forth by big waves and blown here or there by every wind. Yeah, that. I feel like that. I've accepted Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I still feel like an infant in the waves. Okay, I hear you. So I want to give you three places to start. Here's a truth that I think American Christians in particular struggle with. Jesus is a person, not a process. Jesus is not a process. Jesus is a person. People want seven steps, a four-week plan, a diet, a class. But what I want you to do, what I want to suggest if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to understand Jesus, if you want to encounter Jesus, to focus on Jesus, to really know Jesus, you're going to need to go where Jesus is and to care about the things that Jesus cares about because that's how a relationship works. That's how you get to know a person. So I've got, I've got three points that I want to give you, that I want to leave you with. at the end uh, of the sermon. 3 I've listed them on my notes as causes. Three causes that the heart of God cares deeply about. The first is the cause of the marginalized. If you want to encounter Jesus, you're going to find him at the edges of the world. You're going to encounter Jesus at the margins, at the very peripheral edges, with the people that have been pushed as far out as they can possibly be. Those who have been pushed to the edge of the world, pushed to the end of the line, and pushed to the bottom of society. There's a lot of different ways that people have been marginalized, oppressed, pushed down, pushed away, locked out in our world, in our culture, in our city, in our community. Find them, and you're going to find Jesus. When you allow God, and this is, this is a scary thing, you've got to be brave to do this, to change your priorities and your perspectives to focus on those who, the, the, the churchy, the biblically word is the least of these, those who have been made small, God's going to give you new perspective on pretty much everything. You'll start to realize that a lot of things that you've cared about, that you've worried about, don't matter as much when justice is on your heart. The second of these causes that I want to highlight is the cause of the global church. We need to cultivate an awareness of what God is doing globally. The the story of the church is not nearly as small as our church here in Kennesaw or the church in the United States or the church in the Western Hemisphere. God is up to something everywhere you go. I, I I get irritated when I hear uh, missionaries saying they're going to take Jesus somewhere because Jesus is already there and already active and already working. I think the best missionaries are always those who go places and help people realize that Jesus has always been uh, that good thing and and point people towards a better understanding of that person of who Jesus is. But you, you need to have an awareness of missions. You need to find some missionaries Something that our, um, our speaker on our uh, youth trip was saying is social media is an incredible tool for this. You can go and talk to people around the world today. You can cultivate friendships with Christians on the other side of the world and start to understand what God is doing in other places, and that will bless you so tremendously. A lot of... When, when I started with some of these relationships and, and missions endeavors. And it's easy to do this. I, I had sort of that, I'm going to take Jesus there mentality. I had an arrogance about my experience, my education, my library. And I, I realized quickly that what the Holy Spirit is doing globally is so much bigger than what I have any context for. And so these relationships, when you build them on a, on a level plane, when you encounter Other leaders and ministers and Christians around the world, you're going to realize that the Holy Spirit is so much bigger than what you've previously encountered. And we're a family. We're supposed to be sharing these resources with each other. I've got a library that my friends around the world, they need to know what's in some of those books, but I need to know what the Holy Spirit has done for them because it's so much more than I've expected in my own life, and it has changed my perspective on what God can do. Find find out what's going on in the world of the church. Find some missionaries to care about, to pray for, to know, to support, and learn about the persecuted church around the world. It is as bad today for Christians globally as it has ever been. When you learn their stories, and there's some of these, there's so little that we can actually do for the, the, the hurting church around the world, but we need to know. We need to know what our family is experiencing so that we can pray in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. And when you do that, you're going to realize that your political concerns aren't that big of a deal. That will change your heart and your mind to know the plight and the joy of the persecuted church. And lastly, the the cause of the local church. Get involved in your community. Be a part of evangelism and outreach and service. Find where what God has built you to do matches what your community and your church needs, and that's where you're going to find joy and purpose and fulfillment. Jim was talking a few weeks ago about burnout in, in church and leaders and volunteers. That we can get burnt out, that we can get tired of working in the church, and that's that is true, but that happens when you're forcing it. A lot of times burnout might be a sign that it's time to do something else in the church, and you need a break. You do need a break. If you are always giving and not receiving, you're going to burn out because you're empty, and that's not how it's supposed to work. But when you find that thing where what you who you are matches what you do, it's going to fill you up. Find that. Find a place in your community for volunteerism to, to be the answer to prayers here in this community. The, uh, we've, we sort of took a break as normal local church. We kind of took a COVID break. Uh, it's time to decide... That uh, maybe you could say that was nice, but it's over. But it's time to ask God, what is my ministry gonna look like in Cobb County, in Townview? Ask God to show you where you will find yourself most alive. And then follow that. You need relationships here. If you want to encounter Jesus, you're gonna do that consistently when you find deep relationship in your church. Accountability, discipleship, and community. People that can really know you. People that can really pray for you. People that can come alongside you in your spiritual development as you pursue Jesus. There's a reason Lone Ranger Christians don't mature very quickly. We need each other. Decide that this is going to be a season of commitment and devotion, that we're going to take time to be serious about who Jesus is and who Jesus says we are in our community, in our worship, and in our devotion to Christ.